We're going to continue our um, we're going to continue our journey uh, this week in the book of Matthew, and uh, up to this point, uh, we realize that Jesus' ministry has begun, and uh, he is uh, he has been announced from John the Baptist. He has been baptized by John the Baptizer. He has uh, identified those who he has invited to follow him, to become his disciples. And the word tells us that he began his ministry with teaching, preaching, and healing. Last week, we talked about teaching, preaching, and we focused a lot on, on healing. And Matthew does something in this uh, where uh, in the end of chapter four, it's kind of like he puts Jesus's ministry in parentheses. And, and he starts out by saying, Jesus went out and he was teaching and preaching and healing. And now in chapters five, six, seven, eight, and nine, we're gonna see that unfold. And then at the end of chapter nine, he's going to say again, Jesus was teaching, preaching, and healing. And then he's gonna send out the people to do the same thing, his followers to do the same thing. And so we're going to get into the teaching part today. As we move into chapter five, we're going to see Matthew start to expound on, uh, on what we've been learning so far. And, uh, and Jesus is going to deliver what is known as the most famous sermon, uh, probably of all times, certainly in, in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and probably next to it, the most famous passage that you might might be familiar with or the world is familiar with is the Lord's Prayer. And so this is one of those moments that's very, very, uh, not just very important, but it's very well known throughout the, throughout the world. So we're going to begin to unpackage this as Jesus uh, begins to speak to the people. And I believe that he wants to speak to us today too. Does that sound good? Would you stand with me? We're going to read the word. Uh, and let's read it with some gusto today, shall we? Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word brings life, and I pray, Lord, it would bring life today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back when the fall happened with Adam and Eve, something also was ushered in. Sin was ushered into the, uh, into the world because Adam and Eve uh, turned away from God and decided to eat the fruit. We know the story. And ever since then, there was a curse that was placed on the earth. Uh, women were, were to have childbirth uh, pains and, 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 and would experience that in birthing, in birthing children. Uh, men who put their, 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 their plow to the ground would experience experience the curse of having to, to plow and to bring fruit for, uh, produced from the land, there was a curse over, over the land. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this pattern of sin and, and God's judgment on sin. All throughout the pages, we see uh, uh, people rebelling from God and God coming and saying, I need you, I want you to turn from your wicked ways or I'm going to obliterate you. And, and we see times when God does that and this righteous hand of judgment moves. And all throughout 
throughout the Old Testament, we see this progression, this curse unfolding of sin that we chose, that we chose God's curse on us, that we, that we chose because of our actions, because of our deeds, because of humanity turning uh, its back toward a, a, holy, a holy God. And so here we find in Matthew 5, Jesus is showing up uh, to the people and, uh, and he started his ministry. And last week we talked about him teaching, preaching, and healing. And we talked about the healing portion uh, of Jesus's ministry was really to bring credibility, help bring credibility to who he was. It brought it bring credibility to the, to the truth that he was indeed the coming Messiah. And you can imagine through the miracles, through the healing, Jesus drew a crowd. Do you know that we are often attracted to the flash and bang? We are often attracted to the fireworks. If things look good or are bigger or better, we end up going to those things. You know how offensive it is when you call somebody and say, hey, you want to come over to my house and hang out for a party? And they say, well, tell me who's going to be there first. What does it matter who's going to be there? I'm inviting you to come to my house. Well, I want to decide if I'm going to go there based on what my experience is going to be. And so often we will walk our Christian journey experience to experience and we will negate the truth of the whole. We will just lean into an experience and we will define our entire journey based on that one experience. And if we're not having an experience, we will complain and pout and begrudge and question the almighty God. It's almost as if God is a puppet on strings for some of us. He moves when we ask him to move. He sits still when we ask him to sit still. We lay him down and put him off to the side whenever we just feel like it. Whenever we get in the mood, we'll pick him back up. When did we become a people who reduced God to being so small when the truth is he is so vast and large and huge and sovereign and holy? This God who breathes stars. And so Jesus arrives on the scene and Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus was and is a king. When he was on the mountainside talking to the multitude, he was a king and he knew he was a king. But the people he was talking to did not know he was a king, nor did they know the kingdom with which he was talking about. And so Jesus came to introduce them, not only to the king, but this kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near for them quite literally. He was standing right there with them. And I want you to understand this morning that the sermon that we call so famous, the sermon that we, we look at and we know so well, this, this, this very time and place where Jesus is going to, he's going to share what, the citizen, what citizenship in the kingdom looks like, Jesus starts with a very important word that negates everything that these people have been under. Do you know that the last word, does anybody here know what the last word of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament is? The very last word. The very last word is cursed. The very last word of the old promise, the Old Testament is cursed. And for 400 years after that, radio silence, and the people have been going uh, over and over the traditions and continuing to be oppressed and continuing to follow all the rules and try to make their way into the kingdom of God by doing all of the right things. But I want you to know that our Redeemer, our Savior, 
the one called Jesus starts this very important teaching with an extremely important and I believe intentional word, and that word is blessed. Jesus came in and the very first word he uses is blessed. You have been dealing with a curse for all of this time, but the kingdom of God is here. And the first word I want to tell you is blessed. God came to to do away with the Old Testament, with the old way of thinking, and he comes in to usher in, to proclaim a new way of thinking, and it starts with the word blessed. We should rejoice in that we can take part in, that we can grab a hold of this blessed word. Now, we reduce blessed to a placard that we put in a bathroom above a toilet, and we say a blessed right? I found a couple coins, the Maxwell jar of money. I am so blessed. Look at me. I'm just so, I'm so well blessed. But the gravity of the king of all heaven saying the word blessed. And in our Beatitudes, the eight that we're going to look at, he says, bless, 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 bless. Do you know that eight is the number? What is the eight? What does eight represent? New beginnings. Jesus came in to usher new beginnings. He came in to usher a new start, a fresh word, a fresh proclamation. He was there to offer something new that they did not know about. And he was joyful to do it. Here's the thing. Jesus was not pulling from what he hoped for. Jesus was pulling and drawing from something that he himself experienced. Have you ever watched those shows where they're building those houses and they pull that big billboard in front of the house? And the person has invested into all of that, all of the, uh, all, all of that building uh, of that house and they're standing there and they are just so nervous about what it's gonna look like on the other side when they pull that thing, uh, they pull that thing away. Do you know Jesus is saying, I have been there. I know what's been built. I know what's awaiting for you. And it's so much better than what's on that billboard. It's so much better than what you have right now. God says, blessed. He says, blessed. The ushering in of the kingdom starts with this significant, extraordinary word, blessed. Blessed. And so everyone is gathered there. Having, having known the law, having knowing, known the oppression that they, were, that they were under. And I can imagine that their expectation from this prophet, from this teacher, from this rabbi, would be to hear, maybe perhaps in a different way, the same thing that they were used to hearing. Get your life right. Get your act together. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. I'm sure that they were prepared to be told what they were doing wrong. I'm sure that they were prepared to be guilted, to be shamed. And they lended ear because of the miraculous signs that he was giving. But let me tell you something. Jesus came to give a new word, a fresh word, a now word. And he begins to speak to these people. And so this is God's eternal proclamation, blessed. Everyone sitting there believing that it's not who you are, but it's what you do that gets you into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is about to revolutionize everything that they have been taught. And he's about to usher in a kingdom that operates upside down from the way the world works. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. I can imagine the, the minute that came out of his mouth, the, first of all, the word blessed, but blessed are the poor in spirit. I can imagine that there were people in the crowd that were going, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I understand that you've healed my left eye and I can see now, and I understand you healed my grandma and all of this stuff, but you've got a few screws loose up in your head, okay? Because, because poor people are not, are not blessed, Poor people are not blessed. So I, Jesus, I, I don't know, maybe I've, maybe I've fallen into the wrong crowd here, but this doesn't make sense. Back when I taught cool church, kids church, a, a long time ago, we had a guy named uh, Nathan Dobbs who, who he started uh, teaching this one Sunday and he got up and he was real nervous and he got up in front of the kids and it was his first time teaching and he said to the kids, sin is good. <laughs> and Arwen and I were in the back and we looked at each other and we went, no, 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 sin is bad, sin is bad. I promise we are not teaching your kids that sin is good. Um, but it hit us when, that, when, that, when he said sin was good, it hit us and it was like, whoa, wait a minute, that's not true. And I can imagine when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, it hit them in a way that was like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not, you don't know what you're talking about. This, this, this can't, be, can't be true. What? Blessed are are the poor, blessed are the poor. The Greek word used here, there are two, essentially two Greek words that are used when you talk about the poor. It's pentakros and pitakos, pentakros and pitakros. There are two words that can be used there and I want to make sure that you understand the delineation because when it came to Jesus talking about the poor in spirit, he wasn't talking about somebody who is just lacking momentarily in financial wealth or in materialism. Okay, we look over in Mark chapter 12. You remember the story where Jesus is standing, sitting there and the woman came with the two copper coins and she was putting them in. Do you remember this story? And he says to the disciples, he says, see the woman who's putting in the two copper coins. She gave more than almost everybody in the room because she gave out of what she didn't have, right? She gave out of, she just gave what she had, all of it. She gave it in. And that, and that was a, that was a Pentecost type of poor. And it's not the type of poor that Jesus was referring to when he was on the Sermon on the Mount. What he was talking about was Pentecost poor. Pentecost poor is more found in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And I want to read this to you just to give you an example. It says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. This was a picture of Pentecost poor. This is a picture of destitution. It's a picture of, I don't have any, I wouldn't even know what to do with two copper coins if I had them because I am so lowly. I am so without. I am so empty. I am so nothing. Nada. I have absolutely nothing. Destitute. Pentecost poor. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are Pentecost destitute in spirit, destitute in spirit. Now, I, my prayer today, this is going to be a weighty word. I'm just gonna let you know, okay? My prayer today is that we have a self-examination 
of where we are in our journey with God. That we would understand that for some reason we think at times that we can bring something of value and worth to the table that is spiritual, that we have something of value to offer that puts us on a higher playing field than anyone else. And I want you to understand that when it comes to spiritual impoverishment, we are all on the same playing field. There is no one that is greater. Some of you have read your Bible over and over. The other week we were in here on Thursday night, I picked up Justin's Bible. It's got highlights, pages falling out, all this stuff. It is the marks of a man who has studied the scripture. I'm gonna tell you right now, Justin's righteousness is as a filthy rags. My righteousness is like filthy rags. There is nothing that I have done that puts me at a superior level than anybody in this house. There is nothing that I can bring of superiority in the spiritual realm other than empty cup, nothing, destitution, poor in spirit poor in spirit. And Jesus is here to tell all of the people, some of you have done 50% of what you're supposed to do. Some of you have done 30%. Some of you have done 80%. The Pharisees think they've done 95%, but they've really done 20%, okay? All of these things. But I want you to know, even if you think you've done 1%, it's like filthy rags. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are destitute in spirit, who are poor in spirit, when was the last time that in your evaluation of your journey with the Lord, that you acknowledge the fact that you are destitute, that you are poor in spirit, that you have nothing of value to bring to this king that he has not given to you himself? Spiritual pride rises up when we think that we know something. Do you know that probably the person on this planet who knows the most about the kingdom knows probably a drop in the bucket of really what it's all about? He is a holy, sovereign God. Pitikos, our hands and our knees on the ground with nothing, spiritually impoverished. There is no spiritual pride. The Pharisees were struggling with spiritual pride in big, obvious ways. This is what the prophet Isaiah in the chapter 66 says about God's favor. Has my hand not made these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those are the humble and the contrite in spirit and those who will tremble at my word. When was the last time you trembled at the word of God? When was the last time you were contrite in spirit? No, I will just take my God with a side of a latte, with a little bit of cream. I'll take my God in the comfort of the air conditioning and just comfy seats. Don't worship too long, I'm tired of standing. I would like to cherry pick my way into, here's the thing, I like a good buffet. Who likes a buffet? I like a good buffet. Let me tell you what I like about a buffet. It's not so much that there's all of this incredible food. What I like about a buffet is I get to pick and choose what I want. And some of our Christianity is buffet style. I'm gonna pick this, I'm gonna pick that because that tastes good, but I'm never gonna touch this pan over here. But I wanna tell you that God is the whole picture or he's nothing at all. 
He's the whole picture or nothing at all. And let me tell you something. I believe the people sitting on the Sermon uh, on the Mount, the ones listening, had an upper hand to all of us because they were on the side of moving from works to grace. We're on the side of moving from grace and understanding that we could do nothing to earn it. So we wallow in this grace and we say, oh, that's okay. I can treat God and act like God's anything because I'm just a spoiled rich kid in his kingdom. I paid my tithe. God says, shut up. I sent my son and he died on a cross for your sin to save your soul. Spiritually impoverished, the awe-inspiring God. We have a tendency to only attribute things that, are, that happen to us that are good. We have a tendency to only attribute those things to God. Here's, here, here's, how we're supposed to, here's how we're supposed to look when it comes to being poor in spirit. Going back to the book of Luke here. This is what this is supposed to look like. Chapter 18, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One Pharisee and, the, and another, a tax collector, a sinner. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. What would it look like that we would actually not even feel as if we could look up to heaven? I believe if God looked in the room, there would be people that would just boldly walk right up to him with their stuff in an irreverent way. Guys, he is holy. And he beat on his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Recently, just recently, I read somewhere, some, one, of, what's one, of my, one of my acquaintances said, I'm just like Jesus. Literally wrote it down. I'm just like Jesus. I know that that's not what they meant, but it's exactly what they wrote. And there are many times where we don't mean that, but that's exactly what we're acting like. When bad things happen to you, it does not mean that God is not in it that God is not a part of it. Pastor Wayne has a book called Particular Ponderings. And he has a page in here on 177, it says this, there's no such thing as being partially sovereign. A person is sovereign or they're not. I should add that goes for a place or nation as well to impact the, little, the matter a little more. A component of a sovereign life is one that is or should be considered as being in charge of anyone, anything, and everything under their rule. Any persons under such a charge who are not yielded or not yielded to a sovereign leadership would be considered as being insubordinate, rebellious, or disloyal. Bear in mind that there are serious repercussions for living in such a state of disobedience. The results of trying to live out from under a sovereign ruler can be costly, in some cases, deadly. So the matter of who's in charge in your life, you are a sovereign, should be considered of major importance here on the planet and over into eternity as well. And Pastor Wayne goes on and he says this. There is a verse over in Romans 8:28. You know it well. It says this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. But we, being the, the wonderful, righteous Christians we are, insert a word that does not belong into this passage. And this word goes right here. 
And we know that in all good things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Just because something good is not happening in your life does not mean that God is any less sovereign. Just because you are going through a valley doesn't mean God won't be there to walk you through it. Just because you are experiencing some type of sorrow and pain doesn't mean that God did not place it there. Because our journey here on earth by his infinite mercy and grace is to become more like him. Who's arrived? Who's arrived? And so you have to imagine that if we are not like him, he's got to chip some things away from us. If you are only praying for sunshine every day, guess what you're going to live in? A desert. You're not going to have any flowers. You're not going to have anything. You're not going to have anything to drink. You're going to have your sunshine. There is a position that we have to take on. Guys, I don't know how to get across to myself and to us that, that the blessing of God is not about how much material wealth and how good and how comfortable you are on this planet. He said in order to follow him, we've got to pick up our cross and follow him daily. You better bet there's going to be some suffering attached to that. There's going to be some things attached to that that he wants to use you for. The, the, the point is not for us to have a great, glorious life here on earth. Look at this. I said this last week. This is it, guys. This is, this is earth. This is our life here on earth. I would rather spend this time suffering for the king and live the rest of my eternity with him, not worrying about anything, than to try to get this over here in the wrong way and not be with him at all on the other side. This is not how this verse works. We insert things because we put ourselves at a level with God that is not healthy. We must understand that he is still God when things do not feel good. Jesus continues and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, for they will be comforted. The word used for mourning here is pentheo. Pentheo is a, a deep, deep grieving as if you have lost someone that you have such a tight bond of love with. Think of a significant other or somebody that you are. It's, it is a wailing grieving. It is a, it is a painful grieving state. Pentheo is, is deep or severe grief. And we see this type of sorrow happening all throughout the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered when God shows mercy, whenever we go through and we see God saying he's gonna destroy, but then he he. It's because of this pentheo type of response to say, I am grieving out of the sorrow of the sin that I have. Would you forgive me, God? Sorrow is a part of the Christian journey. Sorrow is a part of your story. I challenged you at the beginning of the year. What is your story? The whole picture of your story has got to have a sliver of pie of sorrow. Sorrow is a part of your story. Sorrow is a part of God's design. He has a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. So the question begs itself, blessed are those who mourn. Who are we and what are we mourning for? This is what James 4, 8 says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We like to put a nice little period there and move on. But James continues. Wash your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. He continues, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. So who is mourning? The poor in spirit. You'll notice through this sermon that it's all connected. Who is mourning here? The poor in spirit. What are they mourning? Their sin and their spiritual impoverishment. This builds, the poor in spirit become those who who mourn. And spiritual mourning leads to spiritual sadness. But here's the great thing. Your spiritual sadness, when you are in this penthos state, when you are are so uh, distressed and you're able to mourn the sin and you're able to say, God, I'm not worthy, then guess what he does? He comes and he lifts your head. He comes and lifts your soul. He comes and he is the lifter of our soul. And when he does that, we are truly blessed because we are drawing from the source. In the early gathering, James presided over the communion and he talked about being connected to the vine, to abiding in him. Do you know that you can't be connected to Jesus if you're connected to something else? This is where we want. I want my sin and I want Jesus. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And God said, I'm I'm holy. I'm holy. I'm holy. And you ought to be holy. You can't be holy by yourself. They tried that. Didn't work. But Jesus empowers you to be holy. He gives you the strength to be holy. Well, I don't have sin. I don't have sin in my life. I'm doing pretty good. I don't have anything. This is what the Bible says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Every single one of us is a sinner. We need this Jesus. If you're new here this morning, you've not been introduced to Jesus, we would love to introduce you to Jesus this morning. I hope you come back after this weighty message. God is good. Second Corinthians says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Guys, we have to stop leaning into worldly sorrow and we have to start gravitating and grabbing godly sorrow. Your life is supposed to be a perpetual, uh, a, a, a perpetual life of repentance. Why? Guys, I succumb to sin still. I'm sorry, y'all are perfect. Okay, Kevin, I have to keep repenting because I, I am tempted. And when the moment I think I've got my act together, guess what? Boom, something else illuminates. Boom, something else illuminates. Boom, something else. And guys, until I get to that posture of God, I have nothing to bring to the table here. I have absolutely nothing. Until I get to that part, he'll continue to just reveal and reveal. And I can't do anything about it unless I get to that posture of God. You have got to heal me. You've got to change me. You, I, I can't stand that person. I want to punch him in the face, but God, I need your strength. Right? I want that second, third, eighth piece of pie, but God, I need your strength. I'm a sinner. So we see this paradox at work. The spiritually sad will be blessed 
or happy. A loose translation of blessed is happy. I don't like using that word happy because it's such a shallow term, but there is a translation that says happy, happy. Can you imagine that? The spiritually sad will be happy. Will be happy. Here's what this looks like. Do you remember King David? Anybody know King David? King David was known as what? Thank you. What is it, Justin Louder? A man after God's own. I like to think that Kevin's a man after God's own heart. I like to think that. It's a man after God's own heart. We would put David up in those biblical heroes, would we not? Yes. David slept with a man's wife. Then he killed the man to try to not get caught. The man after God's own heart. And this is what he writes in the Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my many transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me, listen to this, cleanse me from my sin. Guys, he didn't say cleanse me from my mistake. Cleanse me from my misstep. Cleanse me from, oh, I just kind of, uh, no. He called it what it was. We don't like the word sin because it insinuates we've done something wrong. Well, guess what? Newsflash, you did. You have. You've done stuff wrong. It is sin. Gossip, sin. Slander, sin. Gluttony, sin. There are sin. There's sin. And what does sin do? It separates us from God. That, that did not change with your salvation. It wasn't like you got saved, now sin all you want and you'll be close to God. That didn't change. Sin separates us from God. Jesus empowers us to stay away from sin so we can be close to God. Do you understand? Cleanse me from my sin for you know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Have you ever had that sin and it just keeps popping up? The remembrance, you know it's there. You know it's there. James, right? It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. Right there in front of you. It's always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and have done evil in your sight. And you are so right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, we don't like that. We might even get to the point of calling it sin. But Lord, you're not justified. Don't judge me. Don't spank me. Don't give me a consequence. God does spank his kids. Just like I spank my kids. I don't abuse my kids, I spank my kids. And what I mean by that is he disciplines us. Why? Why do you discipline your kids? Why? Because you love them. Guys, he loves you. He, he has a kingdom awaiting for you. He is a great king. He's sovereign. He has all of this stuff for you. But guys, if you think you're just going to dance your way right up into the kingdom without any type of confession of your sin and turning from your sinful way, you've got another thing coming. You're just no, you're no better than those Pharisees who think you've got something to bring to the table. We have to be a people who are spiritually impoverished, who mourn our sin and actually mean it and say, God, no matter how hard I work, I have nothing to bring to you of value. Everything I have comes from you. Everything I have comes from you. 
We look at our worldly pleasure and we say, oh, I am blessed. I've got, the Lord is on my side because I've got this new car and this house and these things going on, all that stuff. Let me tell you what the writer Solomon, very wise man, said this in Ecclesiastes. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Some of us live in the house of pleasure and we got it tattooed right across the pleasure, just pleasure, not, not, not pleasure. It's a fool. The kingdom of God is not found in worldly pleasures, but we tend to look at worldly pleasures as if it's good enough. And then we call ourselves blessed. Let me get that little plaque and put it in my bathroom because I've got, you know, the cat, the dog, the two cars, whatever it is, you know, I've got, I'm I'm making it, not having to struggle this week. How are you doing? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm great. Everything's good. Nobody's sick. It's so good. But what takes greater faith, that person or the person who is going through and can say, I am blessed because God is God, period. I'm going through something. I'm going through the valley, but God is God. Boom. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Whether he takes you through the valley or you're on the mountain, he is God. And because he is God and you're connected to him, that's why and how you are blessed. Here's the thing. If you're in love with your sin, you will never mourn it. Some of us are in love with our sin. What's it like to be in love with your sin? It's like being in love with another person. You're infatuated. You're attracted. You want to spend all your time with it. Feels good when you're around it. All of those things, all those attributions, start listing them off. You will never get to the point of mourning it if you're in love with it. So it's time to break up with it. It's time to divorce yourself from it. You don't have the strength. I know that. You don't ha- I don't have the strength. That's where Jesus comes in and says, give me the ring. Give me the ring. It's going to be painful, yes, but guess what? I'm here with you. If you're connected to me, then you've got life. Disconnect yourself from death. Connect yourself to life. Abide in me. I said this last week, and I want to say it again because I just, I'm drilling this point home, I know. Jesus did not come to give you a better life. This is the, this is the, the false narrative and teaching that is out there in the, in the Christian world right now is that Jesus came so that you can have the picket fence, the house, the cars, the plane, all these things. He did not come to give you a better life and give you more worldly crap. He came to change your life. If I was trying to get worldly stuff before, what would you think I'm, what, what, what would you think I was supposed to do on the other side of salvation? Continue to try to get all that? No, Jesus has laid all down, surrender. Just a few weeks ago, powerful message, drop your nets. Gotta let go. Gotta let go. And some, you know what we gotta let go most of? the things we think we know. This is fun this morning, isn't it? It's great. That's what Hebrews 4 says. I'm I'm, I'm winding down, I promise. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, that's the great high priest that's referenced there. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Didn't Jeremy just read the verse about when we are weak, he is strong? Okay. The, the re, he's able to do it because he empathizes with us. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may what? Receive mercy and find grace. Let me, uh, let me uh, approach your throne with confidence to get my new car, to get a bonus. For fill in the blank. No, we approach his throne with confidence in a destitute position so that we can find mercy and grace. So that we can find mercy. Who needs mercy in this house? Who needs mercy in this house? Who needs some grace in this house? Who's a Pharisee in this house? All the hands went down real fast. <laughs> Pharisees don't need mercy and grace because they got their stuff together. I need a God that I can go right, bust right up into the room and say, give me all the mercy you got. Give me all the grace you got. I'm letting go of everything. I need mercy today, God. Guess what? For some of you, it's moment by, for, what are you talking about? So for Kevin, it's moment by moment by moment. I need his mercy the minute I get off this stage. I need his grace the moment I take that step. And so do you. Because of Jesus, you got it. Because of Jesus, you got it. You don't have to work for it. You got it. It's available right now, today, right this second because of Jesus. And it should cause you to go, you are worthy of it all. And it should be so weighty because you are a holy, holy God. I don't deserve it. Worship team, you can come back. When I was a kid, first through third grade, my, my faith journey started out as a Catholic. Some of you can relate. And uh, I remember going to my first confessional. The priest pulled me into his house and we sat on the couch across from each other. And he said, Kevin, I want you to tell me everything you've done wrong. Well, I threw a toy at my brother's face. I still throw toys at my brother's face. No, I'm kidding. He said, good, tell me more. I stole a cookie. Good, tell me more. I didn't clean my room when my mom told me to clean my room. Good, tell me more. It was so encouraging, I started making up sin. <laughs> if there was gonna be a sinner, I was gonna be the very best one. <laughs> and eventually he said, that's enough. As if that's all Jesus could forgive. And then he went to the Lord and prayed on my behalf. What kind of relationship is that <laughs> where I can just dump all of my stuff on somebody and walk away and say, okay, you take care of that for me. Because of Jesus, you get to go right to God yourself. You don't have to go to another person. You don't have to go to another thing. You don't have to go through another ritual. You don't have to do all of the X, Y, Z, A, B, C, all of these things. You just have to cry out for Jesus and you're right in the throne room of God Almighty. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin when you confess it. Lord, I made a mistake. Ah, uh -uh, what a mistake. Lord, I made a misstep. Ah, uh -uh, what a misstep. God, I sinned. That's right, covered. 
but God, you don't know how big I blew it. Cover. But God, I hurt all these people in the wake. Covered. God, but are you that powerful? Spiritual impoverished. You have nothing to offer me. I have everything to offer you, says God Almighty. He is a gracious God and he calls us blessed because he has us and we have him. We're connected to him. So may we take a posture of understanding that we have brought nothing to the table. He has supplied everything and he's invited us into the feast. He is that good. I don't understand it. I don't understand why he loves me that much. I don't understand why he loves you that much, but he does. So may we be a people who can tap into this Pentecost type of destitution. God, you're worthy. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me this morning. Those who are gonna pray, I'm gonna invite you forward. If you were convicted this morning because you're not afraid of what other people think and say because you serve a holy, worthy, sovereign God that's above anybody else in this room, because every one of us probably need to be down here. If you're here this morning and you would just say, God, I'm not spiritually destitute. I need to be. I've got some stuff I'm holding on. I got some stuff I'm bringing to the table. I got some self-righteousness going on. I've got some things I need to repent from. Or maybe you're just holding on to some sin and just kind of, Lord, I'm treating this like a buffet. And I know you've been, th those, those, that asparagus has been staring me in the face and I don't want to eat it. But today, God, because of your infinite grace and because I need your mercy, because I need you, God, I'm going with reckless abandon to surrender to you. The call today is a call to surrender, guys. And if you've got it all together, it's not for you. But if you are messed up, jacked up from the floor up and you need help from this God, today is a call to surrender. If you have needs in this house, confidently go to the throne. He's got mercy, he's got grace for you. Come as we worship together. Let's stay vertical. <laughs> it's only five minutes, can we give? Let's just worship.